Well, good morning, everybody. My name is John McKay. Uh, I am a partner in the gospel here at Fellowship Raleigh, and it is a distinct honor and pleasure to be bringing the word of the Lord to you this morning, uh, along with my wife, Christy, and our four beautiful children, Jackson, Emma, uh, Elizabeth, and Bennett. Um, we love doing life alongside each of you here. Uh, so when I was in high school, uh, I was part of the Boy Scouts, um, and as a part of that, was invited uh, to join what's called the Order of the Arrow. For those of you that don't know anything about Boy Scouts, the Order of the Arrow is sort of like the Honor Society, the cool club, right, in Boy Scouts. Um, and to get into the Order of the Arrow, you have to go through an ordeal weekend. So my ordeal weekend was a blazing hot summer weekend in the sand hills of South Carolina. I got dropped off on a Friday afternoon uh, and nothing in my hand but a canteen. Couldn't bring food, couldn't bring a tent, couldn't bring a sleeping bag, nothing. Just a canteen for water. It was empty and they would fill it for me when it was time to drink. But over the course of that weekend, uh, I knew that I was going to have to do physically demanding tasks, uh, a long hike, do various projects to improve this camp, uh, and that all the while I would have to be in silence. There was a vow of silence taken for the weekend. And so it wasn't an easy camp out. It wasn't fun per se, but I knew at the end of the weekend that a feast awaited me. You see, they planned a banquet for all of the Order of the Arrow inductees. And so when all was said and done, I got to go to the food hall and have a lavish feast. And it was great. I looked forward to that the entire weekend and knew with anticipation that when I was done with this hard and laborious task, that a feast awaited me. In some ways today, I want to talk a little bit about a similar concept, that in this life, though it may be hard, though it may be challenging, there is a great feast that awaits us in the end as well. And so the main idea for this morning is that our present joy, our joy in this life right now is found both in the hope of an eternal feast and an everyday feast of worshiping God. I'm going to read our passage this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. And certainly I welcome you to follow along in your copy of God's word, but I might also just invite you to close your eyes and hear God's word spoken over you too. So from the word of the Lord, Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 6, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus 
is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and that it is trustworthy. We thank you that you have promised us that we may join you for all of eternity at your Father's table for the wedding feast of the Lamb. I pray, Lord, that you would use me to speak your word, that my flesh would not be in the way. Lord, I pray for those hearing the word, that their hearts and their minds would be opened. Lord, help us to rejoice, to take hope and joy in the promise of eternal feasting with you. May you be glorified today, and may your Holy Spirit be present among us. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, let me say something before we dive in, because I know, uh, crazy to be preaching out of Revelation while Pastor Matt's not here, so it could get a little wild. (laughs) My purpose this morning is absolutely not to cover the book of Revelation. I'm not going into end-time prophecies. I'm not giving you my interpretation on apocalyptic events or symbols. No. In fact, I'm going to spend very little, if any, time on those things. And if you have questions about those things, or if you just want to share your thoughts about those things, then you are more than welcome to send them along. Matt at fellowshipraleigh.org <laughs> be the best email address to send those. Thanks. Uh, instead, my hope today is that this word stirs your affections for Jesus. Better yet, through his word, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit stirs up in you a worship of God. And again, right, our main idea today is that our present joy is found in the hope of eternal feasting and everyday feasting of worshiping God. And I have five points that I'd like to walk through to help us unpack this package verse by verse. So the first is that, number one, we need to see God for who he is. See God for who he is. This comes from verse 6. And in verse 6, we see that there is this roaring, deafening crowd of heaven praising God with all that they have to give. Why are they doing that? This passage is situated in what arguably is the climax of the book of Revelation. John has been sharing a series of visions and pictures with us that the angel of the Lord has been revealing to him. And most recently in chapter 17 and 18 and 19, John describes the fall of Babylon this great and oppressive enemy of God, right? Babylon was actually an oppressor of God's people many hundreds of years before the writing of this word, but it also symbolizes the end-time center of human power, glory, and wealth. It is this final climactic expression of rebellious civilization, as John Piper puts it. And so John's visions in the book of Revelation have been building toward this moment where God categorically and unequivocally has victory over evil. And here we find ourselves in chapter 19 as heaven bursts forth, burst forth with praise and worship because God has defeated evil Babylon. In verse 6, we have a command. It says, hallelujah. And literally, that means praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. Why do we want to praise the Lord? Well, the verse tells us. It says for, and you could just substitute the word because there to understand it. Read it as hallelujah, because the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Praise the Lord, 
because he reigns. What does it mean to reign? According to dictionary.com, which is a very reputable source, reign as a verb is defined as to possess or exercise sovereign power or authority. As a noun, it means royal rule or authority or sovereignty. So heaven is overflowing with praise because God reigns, because he's sovereign, because he's just demonstrated his ultimate sovereign power and authority over this enemy of heaven and of God's people, the epitome of sin and death, Babylon. And so in seeing God for who he is, we see that he is all-powerful, that he is sovereign, and that he reigns. And there's nothing, nothing that can stand against our God and ultimately succeed. Consider this, too, in the context of John's Gentile Christian audience that he would have been writing to and the Jewish heritage that many of them would have known. In chapter 1 of Revelation, John tells us that he's writing this book to the seven churches that are in Asia. Well, to them, Babylon would have been understood certainly as a symbol of evil and oppression, of excess at the expense of God's people, and they would have been deeply despised. Recall for a moment the history of God's people with Babylon. It's not good. It's bad, in fact. They took them, exiled them from their land, beat them, killed them, pillaged them. They didn't like them. They despised them. That ran deep. You know, kind of like us Tar Heels, think of the Duke Blue Devils. Seriously. No, Babylon was the epitome of evil. Moreover, at the time of Revelation's writing, which was around the mid-90s AD, the Roman Empire had become the next great oppressor of God's people. They had destroyed the temple in 70 AD, and now they were imposing their reign and their power with severity and cruelty. Even John was writing this letter from a damp cave on the tiny island of Patmos, which is in the Aegean Sea off the coast of modern-day Turkey, because he had recently been exiled from Ephesus. The point of God's absolute reign of his overriding authority and power over all things would have hit home for these people. It was a great hope for them then, and it's a great hope for us, God's people today too. You see, if we see God for who he is, then we see that he is sovereign and he is in control And there is no enemy that can stand against him. Verse 6 gives us a very clear sense of what the proper response to God's sovereignty is. And it's simply to praise him, to say hallelujah. We praise him, we worship him because he is in charge of all creation. Nothing goes unnoticed by him. There is nothing that's outside of his reign or rule. He's all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Paul drove this same point home in his letter to the Romans reading from chapter 8, verses 31 to 32 and 37 to 39. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is not a cold, removed, indifferent, reigning sovereign. This is an active, involved, 
pursuing king who cares for his people and is working in his creation. We see destruction and despair and sin and death around us. And even the past several days, right, our TVs and our social media feeds have been filled with the images of devastation, even from the wrath of a hurricane. It was far more in the faces of the people of John's day. They saw death constantly. They saw suffering to the extreme. But as Christians then and now, we see the effects of sin on our world, and yet we have hope. Why? Because we have a joy. We know that our great God is reigning over all of this. It's not outside of him. He's working in it and through it. He has purposes in everything, far beyond our finite minds can see and our weak hearts can feel. He is above all things. And so our first point is that we need to see God for who he is. He is our mighty and all-powerful, sovereign, reigning God. See it on the page, know it in your mind, and feel it in your heart. Take hope in it. Point number two is that we need to savor what God has done. Savor what God has done. This comes from verse 7. Look at it with me. Here, the crowd of heaven calls us to rejoice and exult and give him the glory. And again, we have a reason given. Why is heaven rejoicing and exulting and giving God the glory? For or because the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. We're at a wedding. And the most anticipated moment has arrived, right? The bride is ready and she's coming down the aisle. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, one of the best parts of a wedding is this, this moment right here. Sure, the revelation of the bride on her wedding day is something. A bride in a wedding dress is a beautiful thing to behold. And yes, for me, the waterworks were flowing when I saw my bride appear at the end of the aisle on that day. But honestly, the reason I like this moment so much is because it's one of the few times when we get to see the softer, more emotional side of many men. In that moment, when the doors open and they behold their bride, the one whom they love, in a white dress, proceeding toward them. We get to see the groom's love for his bride overflow in this climactic and public moment. Tears, quivering lip, bouncing to keep those knees from giving out on him. I like to watch the groom and see his reaction to his bride. And in some ways, in verse 7, I think that's actually what it's pointing us to, to keep our eyes on the groom. The marriage of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. The bride, his church, has made herself ready, but it is the groom's love for his bride that has caused the worship party in heaven. Paul helps us make this connection very clear between the wedding and Christ's love for his bride when he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 25. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Skipping now to verse 32, here's the connection. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
So Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10, is in fact the very event that God planned from before the foundation of the world. This is the consummation of Christ coming to his world to save for himself a people, the church. Jesus himself connects this imagery of a wedding feast when he's speaking to the chief priests and Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 2, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And even going back to the Old Testament, this great wedding is foreshadowed. The prophet Isaiah, in his own explosive worship song that spans chapter after chapter, he says in chapter 54, verses 5 and 6, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And the prophet Hosea, too, he gets in on the action. He describes the engagement. says in chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So coming back to our wedding ceremony in Revelation, this moment that we're seeing has been God's plan all the while. And the bride is ready. It's time for the marriage, and heaven calls us. Rejoice, exult, and give him the glory. We respond this way because as Christians, we are that bride, that wife deserted and grieved in spirit, cast off, as Isaiah says. We are the one he pursued even in our sin, even in rebellion against him. And it is the groom's love for us which has been steadfast, unrelenting, and pursuing. And here we are, standing at the end of an aisle, walking to a marriage we don't deserve. He saved us from ourselves, from our sin, and from the death we rightly deserve. Friends, this is good news. This is good, good news. And we can savor it. We can savor what God has done in this moment because the whole of the Bible tells us that he's been pursuing us. So let us rejoice and let us exult and let us give him the glory for it. Savor what he has done and see God for who he is. Point number three. Point number three is to put on what God has given. Put on what God has given. This comes from verse eight. And here we learn something very interesting about the bride. It says it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And I want you to notice that phrasing, it was granted her. Pulling a page out of Matt Schoolfield's book, what do we gain by that? Could have simply read, and his bride has made herself ready, clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. But it doesn't say that. We see that it was granted her to wear this fine linen. So of course, right, this phrasing is intentional. And as we read on through the remainder of the verse, we see that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the bride, which is the church, is wearing fine linen, and it says it signifies the bride's own righteous deeds, the deeds of the saints. So how are we supposed to make sense of that? 
The host of heaven really saying that the church has finally become righteous enough to be married to Christ? Well, let's go back to Isaiah, who helped us a few minutes ago. In chapter 61, verse 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. So God is the one who grants this. God is the one who covers and adorns his bride. God is the one who causes righteousness, not us. Paul affirms this same understanding in his letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the bride is wearing the fine linen, bright and pure, And God has clothed her in it. This is not our own doing, but God's. And this is true for us too, right? As Paul has just told us. No matter your past, no matter what you did 50 years ago, 10 years ago, one year ago, a week ago, a day ago, on the way here this morning, no matter what you're going to do when you get in your car to leave here today, or what you'll do tomorrow or next week or next month or 10 years from now, If you are in Christ, if you are part of his church, then you're his bride, and he has clothed you in the finest of linen, bright and pure. There is no blemish, there is no spot, there is no stain. Your deepest, darkest, innermost secret that you want no one to know about, even that cannot withstand the cleansing and purifying effect of a holy God clothing you in fine linen, looking at you at the end of a wedding aisle with his heart pouring over for love, with love for you, his bride. Brothers and sisters, that's the heart of our God right there. That's the heart of the gospel. And so the call is to put on what God has given you. You don't need to do anything else. Simply embrace it. Put it on. Stand with humble confidence in the righteousness that God has given you and treasure it with all of your heart. And if you don't know this assurance, if what I'm speaking right now doesn't land for you, if you don't know Christ as your groom or as your Savior, He stands calling you to come. He's calling you to be His own. Just as Hosea wrote from the same chapter we were reading from before, The Lord says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So turn from your own way. Turn from your sin and embrace his way, his forgiveness of you. Surrender whatever it is that you have put your hope in, your identity in, your security in. Turn to him for hope and for righteousness. 
So put on what God has given, the fine linen, bright and pure, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. And savor what God has done, fellow Christian. See God for who he is. Point number four is that we are called to feast with God as one who is blessed. This comes from verse nine. And as we pivot from this view of a heavenly worship service, we come back to the angel who is guiding John along his journey of visions. And the angel says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So this marriage supper, this feast that follows the marriage of the lamb to his bride, the church, this is an event we're going to want to be at, right? Blessed are those. In fact, the groom, Jesus, has quite a bit to say about this issue as well. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus tells a parable of a wedding feast, of a great banquet, comparing it to the kingdom of heaven. But what's interesting is that in those parables, there's a huge problem with the guest list. See what it says for us in chapter 14 of Luke, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Now the parable goes on to say that the master, he's upset. All these people declining his invitation. He's angry, and he instructs his servants to go out and find people from all over the city streets. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, bring them in. These are the folks who wouldn't normally get invited to the feast. And he closes with this in verse 24 of Luke chapter 14. He says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So Christians, can you relate? I certainly can. In this age of distraction and instant gratification and self as king, I think we're very much at risk of being just like one of the original invitees. You see, there's this wedding and a feast that's going to follow it. And it's going to take place, and it's going to exceed the joy and pleasure of our earthly experiences beyond what we can even begin to wrap our minds around. And yet, here we are in 2022, preoccupied, distracted by, and enticed by the offerings of this life, which are fleeting. C.S. Lewis put it perfectly when he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friend, how do you respond to the king's invitation to his banquet? What has you distracted from feasting with joy with your God? Maybe your response would look something like, 
I have a fine job that provides for my family. Please have me excused. I have a reputation to protect. You know, I've worked hard. Please have me excused just this once. I have the thrill of a relationship, finally, of intimacy. Please, God, have me excused. Whatever it is, friend, don't miss this banquet. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is, in fact, the supper that Christ anticipated when he held his last supper on earth. As he broke bread with his disciples just before going to the cross, he said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And here it is in verse 29 of Matthew chapter 26. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's the feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so, for the follower and the disciple of Christ, this marriage supper of the Lamb is what we long for. Through our ordeal weekend, however long that may be, we look to knowing that our Lord promised to feast with us in his Father's kingdom when all has been made new. And let what is said by the man in Luke fourteen fifteen be true of you and me. Blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. We are blessed because God chose us. He made us his own. And he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because of what he has done, we are blessed, not because of what we have done. We get to come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's a great modern hymn by Sandra McCracken that speaks of this feast. And I could sing it for you right now. I'm not going to do that. I thought about it, but I won't. It says this, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. We will not be burned by the fire. He is the Lord, our God. We are not consumed by the flood, upheld, protected, gathered up. In the dark of night, before the dawn, my soul be not afraid. For the promised morning, oh, how long, O God of Jacob, be my strength. Every vow we've broken and betrayed, you are the faithful one. And from the garden to the grave, bind us together, bring shalom. Don't miss this. Beware of the distractions of this life that might cause you to miss the wedding feast of eternity. And so feast with one, feast with God as one who is blessed. Put on what God has given you. Savor what God has done and see him for who he is. Final point today is number five. Worship God as one who trusts the gospel. Worship God as one who trusts the gospel. So in response to all that he has seen and heard, we see John finally respond. It says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. He's talking about the angel here. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the Apostle John just got reprimanded 
literally yelled at by an angel. And there's a couple of other things to note here. Number one, the angel refers to himself as a fellow servant with John and other believers. And number two, they share something. They hold to a common testimony of Jesus. What is this testimony? Again, here I think a definition is helpful. Testimony can be defined as the statement or declaration of a witness under oath or affirmation. It can also be defined as evidence in support of a fact or statement, a proof, or an open declaration or profession of faith. And so this testimony that the angel is referring to and which John refers to throughout his writings is, in fact, the gospel. It is the belief that Jesus is who he said he was. He was promised and he was prophesied of. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died and was buried. He descended into hell and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. The Apostles' Creed. But the angel doesn't just sternly correct his servant, John, in his errant ways. No, he points him to the right response of all that he has just seen And it's simple. Two words, worship God. You see, that's the whole point, is it not? That is the entire point of the entire Bible. John Piper says it like this, the goal of everything that the angel has been revealing is this. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. It's the whole point of all God's judgments, all of his dealings with the world, all God's plans from history, from beginning to end, have this one goal, and it is to worship God. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. Don't even worship the holy messenger, the angel, who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen and been defeated forever. No, worship God. This great feast, this wedding supper we look to is ultimately all about Christ himself. And as he tells us, directly recorded in John's gospel, Chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus is speaking to a crowd that is seeking from him some proof that he is who he says he was. And Christ says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In response to this, the Pharisees grumble at Jesus And, of course, get caught up in his genealogy, arguing with him, we're not from God, you're from Joseph. But in verse 47, Jesus responds again, and he says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. But this is the bread that comes from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Friends, this is the testimony of Jesus. It is true and it is trustworthy. And as verse 10 says in our passage, it is the spirit of prophecy. It is the accurate prediction of what is to come. And we are blessed to be invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb, to feast with our God, And our rightful response to that is to look at our groom, Christ, and fall to our knees in worship. 
to burst forth with the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, praise Yahweh, rejoicing and exulting and giving him the glory. And so this morning we've covered five points to worship God as one who trusts the gospel, to feast with God as one who is blessed, to put on what God has given, to savor what God has done, and see God for who he is. And friends, these truths which we see in this short, glorious passage point us to remember our joy. Right now, in the present, our joy is found in the hope of a great and eternal feast which we look to and long for. But it's also found in the everyday feast of being nourished by God's very word, his revelation to us. This is the gospel that we know and we trust and we cling to. And that's our song. That is a song of hope and of joy and of worship. And to close this morning, I want to use the God-inspired words of Isaiah one last time who some 700 or so years before the birth of Christ prophesied of this great wedding supper of the Lamb. Isaiah was living the Assyrian assault on God's people, prophesying about the Babylonian exile, and in the midst of that great pain and suffering, there was a great hope of God's final judgment and victory that gives the people of God assurance. That was true then, And it's true now. And so as we close, please hear this word of the Lord. It's so precious. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. Will you pray with me?